Let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the king of his officials, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then, at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. 
And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Let's pray. God in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge you as our God and Lord and King. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us through your word and that you have given us your word to guide us, to encourage us, to fortify us. And we pray you do that very thing this morning. God, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us and instruct us and give us understanding into what we just read. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to think your thoughts and understand your ways, even if they are not popular and even if the world mocks at them. Lord, we thank you that you and you alone are God and will be glorified May you be glorified this morning in our presence, in our midst, in our gathering. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, it is not saying too much to say that the opening line of the book of Daniel contains the entire book of Daniel. Look at verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Judah and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. I want to say that again, that this first opening line of Daniel contains the entire book of Daniel. Now, of course, there's plenty more things that God is going to say in the book of Daniel. There's a lot of more details that obviously aren't in this verse, but the main point of the book is found right here. And the main point that is in the book of Daniel, the main theme, is just this, that God is sovereign and He is in control of the affairs of men and of nations. Make sense? Have you, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you'd probably agree with that, right? That the, that the theme here of Daniel is that God is in control of the affairs of men and of nations. And what happens with men and with nations is not happenstance, right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming to Jerusalem and besieging it and having victory over Jerusalem, Daniel wants us to see right from the beginning, this is not happenstance. This is not just... Him recording what happened. We don't know where God was in all that, but he wants us to know right from the beginning, this happened because God's decree. This happened because God willed it to happen. This wouldn't have happened if God did not want it to happen. This is the work of the Lord. In fact, this comes very clear. This is uh, clear in the use of the word, uh, the the word that Daniel uses in verse 2, for the Lord. Now many times in our Bibles when we read the word Lord, it's usually uh, the translators exchanging uh, the word Lord for the word Jehovah or Yahweh, right? So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but many times in the Bible uh, the word Yahweh is used. It's the name of God. 
and the English translators will translate it Lord. But here, the word is not Yahweh, for the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The word is Adonai, and Adonai in Hebrew means Lord. So Lord here is actually the correct translation. It's communicating God's sovereignty, God's power, that he is the Lord. We often say the word Lord flippantly, but look how the uh, officer of the, uh, the chief of the, the officers refers to Nebuchadnezzar. My Lord the King. The Lord is the superior. The Lord is the sovereign. The Lord is the one who's in control. And by the use of Adonai here, Daniel's making it exceptionally clear what he is trying to communicate. Adonai gave Jerusalem into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The book of Daniel means for us to see this, that God is Adonai, that Yahweh is the Lord, the sovereign Lord in control of all things regarding men and nations. Do you believe that? If you don't see this, you have not understood the book of Daniel. If you don't believe that God is in control of the affairs of men and nations, you have not understood the book of Daniel. I'll just give a brief sampling of the first historical section of the book of Daniel. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. Here, And this is just an ongoing theme throughout Daniel. It's almost like a broken record, except it's not. This is the inspired word of God. Daniel is praying and giving thanks to God. And in his prayer, he acknowledges this. It is, it is he, God, who changes times and epochs. It's one amazing thing about history is times change, right? As Bob Dylan sang, right? Times, they are changing. You look at the history of the world and times change, epochs change, rulers rise, ideas change. Things are not uh, always staying the same. And according to Daniel, who changes the times? Is it just happenstance? Is it just random? Not according to the book of Daniel. It is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. Very, very important for us to understand. Do you believe that? When election time rolls around, when coups take place and military leaders uh, illegally take the throne of nations, or when people legally are elected into their nations, is that just happenstance in the news? Or do you see the hand of God in all of the affairs of men and nations? Look at chapter 4, verse 16. This is when Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson. Because Nebuchadnezzar here actually attributed it, all of his success not to God. Nebuchadnezzar attributed all of his success to himself saying that it was my hand that, had, that did all these things. Mine and mine alone. And here's what he learned. Look at verse uh, 16 here. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. It's kind of frightening that God can do that, right? Anytime, anywhere, to anyone, change his mind to that of an animal. Just like that. Nebuchadnezzar has no say in the matter. And at seven periods of time, God even determines how long his mind will be like the mind of an animal. 
Let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones. Why? In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. He's calling Nebuchadnezzar the lowliest of men. He's, I set you up and you're nothing. He, of course, thought he was the greatest. But God did this in order that the living may know. Now, we are the living. Do you know that? Do you understand that? That this is the work of God. Look at verse 32. Daniel repeats himself. Look at the last part of verse 32. Uh, You will be given grass to eat like the cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over your head until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Look at verse 35. This is now when Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, comes to his senses after those seven years and he acknowledges the dominion of the Lord and he says in verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Does that include you? Yes. But God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can police God. Okay? And say, stop in the name of the law. (laughs) You can't do that. No one can say, what are you doing? God rules in the heavens over all and no one can ward off his hand. Chapter 5, verse 21. Nebuchadnezzar's uh, grandson has to learn this lesson as, as well. Uh, look at verse 21 and and here Daniel is called in and he's explaining the writing on the wall but before he does he he rebukes Belshazzar and he says you didn't learn the lesson of your father he was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place with the wild donkeys it must have been an absolutely stunning thing to see King Nebuchadnezzar living with donkeys for seven years. The greatest man on earth living with donkeys. Pick, pick the greatest man on earth today and imagine him for seven years chewing grass with donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Dear brothers and sisters, whoever is ruling in our earth today is ruling not because of the wish of man, but because of the will of God. Do you believe that? If you don't, you have not learned the lesson of the book of Daniel. Like Nebuchadnezzar and like Belshazzar had to learn this lesson. God does what he does. God does what he will and no one can stay his hand. Uh, One author, Harry Lacey, said this, The power of men, however great, when a fraction of creation's might is unleashed against it, becomes but a toy tossed in the tornado of the infinite. Amazing, huh? 
Isaiah, in chapter 40, verse 15, says, The nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Dust on the scales. Meaning, if you were to put the nations on scales, it wouldn't even move the scales. They're not even the kind of thing that has any weight whatsoever. It's just dust. It's just nothing. Drop in a bucket. That is what God thinks of the nations. That is God, what God thinks of the greatness and the power of men and mankind. That is how easy it is for God to deal with the nations and to block them out. Have you ever been, you know, seen a drip of water going down your, win- your window when you're driving in a car? What, does that threaten you at all? You know, are you afraid? Oh, my! <laughs> it doesn't, right? It doesn't. And with the wipe of your hand, you can smear it away. And so it is with God. And yet, here's the fascinating thing about it. And yet the nations are indeed something to God, aren't they? Isn't that an interesting thing? The nations are a drop in the bucket and dust on the scales. And yet we read over and over and over again in the Bible, God is is eminently concerned with the nations, is he not? Over 500 times in the Bible, the word nations is mentioned. That's that's about the same amount of time as the word love is mentioned in the Bible, just to give you a little bit of perspective. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know how much concern God has with these drops in the bucket. Henry Morris spoke of the magnitude of the biblical concern with the nations. Even though they are nothing, God's concern over them is enormous, is it not? Isn't that a fascinating thing? It reminds us of Psalm 8, 3-5, When I consider the heavens and the stars the work of your hands. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you take notice of him? Yet, you have made him a little lower than the angels and have given him dominion over the earth. You see, Though man is nothing, and David is acknowledging that, right? What is man in the light of your, who you are? We are absolutely nothing. Yet, because we are made by God, and because God has given us dominion, we are something to God. Isn't that amazing? In and of ourselves, we are nothing but what he has made us to be, and God is passionate about what he has made. Isn't that amazing? It is the same with the nations. What are the nations? Nothing but a drop in the bucket. And yet God has made them and given them dominion. And so he is passionate and concerned about them. Do you know that God made the nations? Turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We'll do a bit of flipping around here. The idea of nations was God's idea. Acts 17, verse 26. Here's what Paul says. Paul also agreed with Daniel that uh, he who resists the powers resists God because God is the one who ordained those powers, right? Acts 17, verse 26. God made from one man every nation of mankind 
So here he's not, his point is not God made one man. His point here is that God made every nation from one man. God is the creator of nations. And look what he's done. God has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, okay? Uh, from where does the time of a nation come from? From God. Why does a nation why is a nation born and why does a nation disappear? God. Why does a nation live where they live? Why does a people have that particular place? Look what Paul says. And he's appointed the boundaries of their habitation. He's appointed their times and he's appointed their boundaries. Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. You're familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. Here we see how God created the nations. How God dispersed them across the earth. Actually, we'll look at Genesis 10. 11 is the Tower of Babel. But in Genesis chapter 10, we have here the, what's been called the Table of Nations. And some of us might have missed this, but each and every one of these names, obviously this name is, is uh, these are the sons of Noah and their sons. And it doesn't list everybody because there was a lot more people you could name, grandsons and all this. But it's, it's believed by scholars, and I think it's clear in the text, that this is the original table of nations, that when God scattered the nations at the Tower of Babel, uh, these were the different heads of the nations uh, at that time. Not that they all lived at that time, but these were the families uh, that were scattered. And look at verse uh, 5. A- after giving the genealog- genealogical lists of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, they each end like this. Genesis 10, verse 5. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So you see there, we have really two, com- two components. We have language and land that these unique families were given. Every single one of them were divided by God into their inheritance, into their land, given their language at the Tower of Babel, and that's how the nations began. Look at verse 20. Again, you see that. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, and by their lands, by their nation. Look at verse 31. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. Verse 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Brothers and sisters, it is God who created the nations, who gave them their unique languages, and who gave them their land. He is the creator of these things. We didn't evolve from cavemen and, and the scientists can tell you, you know, their, their version of the story, how the nations came about, but God has told us how, in fact, the nations came from him. God created all the nations. And then, God created a new nation. We often talk about how God chose Israel, Right? 
But God did not merely choose Israel. God created Israel. You must remember that Abraham and Sarah could have no children. And the creation of the nation of Israel was a miracle. God created them, gave them their language, gave them their land, gave them very special promises that he did not give to any other nation. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. And notice how important here the nation of Israel is to God. He took this nation to be his special people. And it cannot be overstated. It cannot be overstated how special Israel is to God. Look at verse 8 and 9. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9. See, nothing that God does, uh, we're acknowledging that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God establishes the nations and makes them, and nothing he does is random or capricious. Look what he says in verse 8. No, uh, Moses here. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. What he's saying here is that when God divided the nations and gave the nations their land and their boundaries, he did it with Israel in mind. Isn't that an amazing thing? He did it according to his portion and his allotment. That's the reason why God did what he did. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 5. Look what the prophet Ezekiel has to say about the location of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5. This is quite a remarkable verse. Ezekiel 5, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Isn't that interesting? We have a dear friend here in the valley his name is Jonathan Edgar, and he is a cartographer. That's what he does for a living, is he makes maps. Jonathan once told me, he said, you know, when I study the, the globe and I study the maps of the world, as a cartographer, it strikes me that Israel is like the center of the, of the map of the world. And everything sort of is centered around this land and this city of Jerusalem. And so Ezekiel says that, doesn't he? See, when God established the nations and set their bounds, he had this in mind, to put them right in the center. The nations are important to God because he made them and because he gave them their boundaries and their dominion. So important to God, consider the great promise to Abraham that I will make a great nation out of you. I will give you a land and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So part of that 
original promise to Abraham included this promise to bless all the nations. So important are the nations to God. And if you look at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, verse 21 and 22, you find God referring to the nations coming to God and being saved. There's a beautiful verse that says that this river that flows out of the throne of God uh, uh, goes out from God's throne and there's this tree that is nourished by that river, the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations. I think, brothers and sisters, that so many times as Christians, our worldview doesn't really include the worldview that God intends for us to have, uh, to see God's concern for nations. Often our Christianity is just an individualistic thing, right? It's just about me being saved. Or it's just about me wanting my neighbor to be saved. But you have to realize that in God's mind, he's up to something. He's got this plan and this purpose that he's working out for the nations which he created. Just as he created individuals, so he created nations and has a purpose for them. Although not everything about the nations is salvation. But we also find in the Bible judgment and destruction. Psalm 9, verse 17, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Think of the Canaanites that God destroyed and, and told Israel to utterly annihilate them so that there would be none left. Many nations have come, have risen, and are now gone. They do not exist anymore. God is also a God who judges the nations. God did not wind the machine of the world up and let it go. He isn't himself just watching to see what's going to happen with the nations. God is in complete control. His control is not only with Israel, but with all the nations. Raising them up, tearing them down, judging them, delivering them, furthering his end in the earth according to his will and decree. Job acknowledged this in 12.23. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. It is the same today. All the nations that exist today is because of God's will. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none are able to withstand you. Daniel, as we saw in chapter 4, verse 24, tells us that God sets up whoever he wills, correct? Whoever he wills, he sets up. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, not only do the apostles acknowledge that God sets up whomever he wills, but he causes them to do whatever he wills. You'll remember in Acts, chapter 4, let's turn there. Acts, chapter 4, verse 24. This will be our last scripture we jump to and then we'll go back to Daniel Acts 4 verse 24 the prayer of the apostles as they gathered O Lord verse 24 and when they heard this they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, Why 
did the nations rage, and the peoples devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand. Sounds terrifying, doesn't it? And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They don't quote the next part that says, he that sits in the heavens laughs, right? He looks at all the nations of the earth doing their thing, and he laughs. Because this is the funny thing. Not only does God laugh because when they rise up against him, he can defeat them, but he laughs because their rising up against him is itself a part of his will. Isn't that an amazing thing? They think they're defying God, and in their defiance, they're actually doing the very will of God. Remember Pharaoh? For truly, verse 27, 27, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, my, that's everybody, to do whatever, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. My goodness. So God doesn't only raise up whomever he wills, he causes them to do whatever he wills. Brothers and sisters, God is in control and is sovereign in the affairs of men and of nations. If you don't believe that, you're not believing what the Bible says. Consider that if God sets the boundaries of the nations, then when a nation conquers another nation, what does that mean? That's God. If God sets their boundaries and the boundary expands, that's God. This does not mean that people are puppets. It does not mean that people have uh, no will in the matter. It does not mean that people are against their will, uh, doing what God wants them to do, but that God uses men. God does not stop their evil. God allows Satan to corrupt men and give them these ideas to conquer and to do evil things like Pharaoh did and like Herod did. And God desires it for his purposes and for his goals. He could stop it at any time. He could change the course of history at any time. God is in control. And so it is. Turn back to Daniel chapter 1. That we read, in the light of this background, okay, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And just so, just in case you didn't know, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hands. Lest this be seen as just merely a chronicle, a secular chronicle, this is, lest it be seen as just happenstance, this is the activity of God. In 605 BC, God, the Lord, Adonai, gave victory to Nebuchadnezzar over Israel. Now consider, Nebuchadnezzar is a devout pagan. Nebuchadnezzar is an impetuous, harsh, and rash man, as we will see in the book of Daniel. Babylon is a wicked nation, evil, in the way that they that they uh, were idolaters and the way they treated people. Why then would God do this? Many people ask, why does the wicked triumph? 
How could God do this to his chosen nation and allow Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked, evil, pagan king, to capture Jerusalem? The answer is very simple. Israel would not obey the law of God. Israel would not obey the law of God, the covenant that Israel and God made when God created that nation and brought them out of Egypt. They entered into a special covenant with God where they promised to God they would keep His commandments and God promised in return that if they obeyed His commandments, He would bless them and protect them and He would never let any of the nations around them ever cross into their borders. On the other hand, God promised Israel that if they did not obey his law, he promised them that he would destroy them. He promised them he would wipe them out. Not only would he send famine and pestilence, he would send the sword. He would send nations against them. He would scatter them into the lands of the nations. The simple answer, why did God do this? He did it because he promised he would do it. He did it because he is a covenant-keeping God. And it is absolutely sinful and wicked for anyone to ask, why would God do such a thing? Why would God uh, do this and, and to reject God on account of this or to say, God is, is gone. If God really would protect us, if God really was around, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. And many people did that in that day. And many people do that today. When things happen, they say, Where is God in all this? There's no question where God is in all this. Right? Daniel has no question. God is in this. Duh. Right? This is obvious. This isn't isn't an enigma here or a mystery. Warning after warning was given to Israel through the prophets and yet they would not listen. They would not turn from idolatry and the sacrificing of their children and their violence against the innocents. Jehoiakim was a wicked king. If you read the book of Jeremiah, he burned Jeremiah's scrolls. He sought to kill Jeremiah and he managed to kill a different prophet who was prophesying like Jeremiah. No, it was not because of Nebuchadnezzar's righteousness that he conquered Israel. It was because of the wickedness of Israel that this wicked nation was allowed to conquer and destroy and wipe out Israel. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? When Moses said to Israel, don't think that you are going into the land because of your righteousness, right? Don't think that God is giving you the land and wiping out the Canaanites because you're so good. It's because of the wickedness of these people. And if you, are, if you don't change your ways, you too will be wiped out. So here we have two wicked nations and God is allowing one to conquer the other and God says, when I'm done with you, Babylon, I'm going to wipe out you as well for your sins. Why did God do this? Because God promised that he would. God is sovereign and in control, but not capricious. He doesn't do things willy-nilly. Everything God does is just and righteous. Either he is punishing sin or he is showing grace and patience to sinners. 
So God does not operate randomly and capriciously. This is how the book of Daniel begins. Understand that nothing is happenstance. History is to be interpreted as God's story, His activity, what He is doing, that He is in control, and that He is judging and showing patience in the earth to further His ends and His glory. All the prophets see this. Do you see this? Not everyone sees this. Look at verse 2. Who doesn't see this in verse 2? Who doesn't get it? Nebuchadnezzar himself. For it says in verse 2, The Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He even gave him the vessels of the house of God into his hand. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar does with them. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So here's Nebuchadnezzar's take on the whole thing. I have gained victory over Israel, not only Israel, but the other nations, because my God has given me victory. My God is so great. And there's a real strong contrast here in the Hebrew uh, between the house of God and the house of his God. In fact, in the Hebrew, uh, the article is before God. It should read, the house of the God. He took the articles out of the house of the God, the true God, and brought them into the house of his God. Nebuchadnezzar's God was no God, even though he attributed success to him and failure to Adonai. And so it is today. Today, Many people don't see God's hands in events that take place in history, right? Now, we don't have, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's running, or ne- running around so much in our country these days who are bowing down and worshiping idols, but you have lots of people today in our country, in our nation, who don't see God's hand in anything, not in creation, not in history. And they attribute everything to their God nature. Happenstance. Chance. They even think that events disprove God. Well, if God was real, why would he allow these bad things to happen? Just the opposite is actually the case. The entire book of Daniel deals with this controversy. Who is truly in charge? Who is truly God? This is the controversy God has with the whole world. We shall see it unfold in Daniel We will see it unfold in the world. God will be exalted over all false gods and false notions and ideas. The question is, do you acknowledge God to be the Lord? Now notice in verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar does not merely transplant vessels from the house of God, but he also transplants some of the sons of Israel. Now, we're not to understand this to be the destruction of Jerusalem. That would actually come 19 years later in the future. This is not the destruction of Jerusalem. But Nebuchadnezzar commands for some sons of Israel to be brought. And it's recorded in the history books outside of the Bible that when Nebuchadnezzar conquered, he actually took young men, not just from Israel, but from other nations as well. A select 
few. There were some qualifications, right? They had to be royalty uh, or nobility. They had to be young, uh, probably 14 years old around that age. They had to be without defect or healthy. They had to be handsome. They had to be intelligent. Basically, the emphasis is on, in, on intelligence because they had to be apt to learn young enough to be molded in the ways of Babylon. They had to be impressionable. These few individuals would be fed the king's best food and they would be taught for three years and then, if they were acceptable after that, they would serve personally the king in his court. That is a high honor. Now, we're not to think of them as slaves being carried away to Babylon in chains. Okay, That comes later. Nebuchadnezzar will destroy Israel about 19 years later and he'll deport them in chains. But at this time, Nebuchadnezzar is, is taking the cream of the crop of the young people from the different nations that he's taking and he's giving them this great high honor. Now, of course, they don't have a choice in the matter. They do have to come. But he's giving them this great high honor, this honored promotion and his intent is to make them Babylonians, essentially. To make... to impress them, to wow them with the superiority and the power and the greatness of Babylon over their nation so that they will be loyal servants of him. It will strengthen uh, his control over their home nations. It will weaken the resources that, that these men would be in their home nations. But the goal here is he's taking these young impressionable men and he wants to change the way that they think about the world. In verse 6, we're introduced to Daniel for the first time and his friends. Obviously, what we know about him then is he's 14 years old from a noble family. Daniel grew up in the tumultuous, irreligious days in Judah. He was healthy, handsome, and intelligent. Now, the king doesn't like their names. The king does not like their names, because why? All of their names... Tell us something about Yahweh. Daniel means my judge is God. It's a powerful name. It's the, I don't care what other people think about me. I only care what God thinks about me. He is my judge. And there's application here for the destruction of uh, Israel and Jerusalem and while the Babylonians... Uh, enter their borders, God, uh, Daniel sees God judging Israel in that action. This is not a sign of God's being absent. This is not an absentee landlord God. This is God judging Israel. It also shows that God will vindicate the righteous as well. So Daniel's name is a very powerful statement about who God is. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like it. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is a God of grace. And truly that is the case because God didn't make an utter end to Israel. He never did, right? God may judge other nations, but God in his grace created and chose Israel and blessed them and gave them a special promise by grace and promised to bless them and to preserve them and to never wipe them out. He made them his people. He's faithful to his people. He'll always be. Hananiah's name reminds these young Jews 
God is gracious. Even though we're in a time of judgment, God is gracious. Even though he's judging us, he will be faithful to us. Mishael means who is like God. There is none like God. There is no other God like God. There's no God that exists but God. There's no God as great as God who can do anything. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't like that name. Azariah means the Lord helps. The Lord delivers. The Lord has delivered Israel in the past. The Lord will deliver Israel in the future. These men by their very names, carry with them the knowledge of the one true God and who he is. Nebuchadnezzar wants to vanquish the knowledge of God. In his mind, Yahweh is inferior. And he changes their names so that they don't think of their God this way. And he gives them heathen Babylonian names. Belteshazzar means Bel, protect his life. Bel is one of the gods in Babylon. Shadrach means the command of Aku, one of the gods in Babylon. You are at the mercy of Aku. You are at the command of Aku. You are his servant. Meshach means who is like Aku. There he's just reversing uh, Mishael, who is like God. God is nothing. I'll tell you who, who is really the true God. A coup. How many of you have ever heard of a coup? <laughs> Abednego, servant of Nebo, another god. So he basically takes their names, says, your god is inferior. Let me teach you the truth. Let me teach, let me show you who's really in control. Let me show you who's really worthy of worship. Let me show you who really caused your nation to be succumbed to mine. This is exactly what Satan does and wants to do today. He wants men to forget Yahweh. He wants to interpret everything in a different way so that you do not put your trust in the one true and living God who is in control of all things. Satan absolutely hates the idea of God's sovereignty. Imagine how difficult it would have been for these young men. Imagine being 14 years old. You didn't choose to move. Most of us don't like to move, right? Who wants to move? It's a pain. But imagine, you've got to leave your family. You've got to leave your home. Even though it's this great privilege, you don't, you're 14, you're, you're, you're uprooted from your familiar environment. You're taken to this place that's so different than the place that you grew up in. Babylon was an immense and impressive city. One of the greatest obvious differences, there was this enormous river that ran through the city of Babylon. The only river in Israel was the tiny Jordan stream, okay? And they called it the Jordan River. It wasn't that big. In some places it got large, but it was really quite small compared to the Euphrates. And so the river itself speaks of grandeur and, and size and commerce and power. And they arrive in Babylon Massive rivers, massive size, massive walls. It was said that Babylon had a thriving, uh, had thriving technology, science, medicine, trade, agriculture, construction. You could, you could, I could go into all sorts of things that Babylon had. It was actually very modern. There was uh, hospitals with surgery that was taking place. Uh, one one scholar says that 
the living conditions in Babylon at the time would have been like the living conditions in America before the Industrial Revolution. Nebuchadnezzar built the great hanging gardens, basically an artificial mountain. With, uh, it was watered in, with an amazing uh, uh, watering system that, that imitated this mountain with trees all over. It was actually artificial, amazing construction. And these men are so young. And of course, many, we only know of these four, but the others probably succumbed to the grandeur of Babylon. Yeah, sure, I'll give up my gods for your gods. This, this is good. But the same God who reserved 7,000 in Israel that did not bow the knee to Baal in Elijah's day reserved these young men for himself. And we see in verse 8 that Daniel made up his mind. Obviously, uh, the others as well. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not succumb to the gods of Babylon. And this was not willpower. This is so important. Many sermons are preached in the book of Daniel. Look how strong Daniel was. Look at his willpower. Look, he stood when everyone else fell. You too should stand when everyone else falls. But we miss it completely when we think this is willpower. This is him being strong. This is nothing other than Daniel having faith. Because Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah knew the scriptures and that was their secret weapon. That was the only thing that would have gotten any person through this time. That they knew what God's word said and that when they reflected upon the destruction of Jerusalem or the capturing of Jerusalem and the bad things that were coming they had heard Jeremiah's preaching they had remembered the law of Moses and they knew how to interpret those events so as not to lose their faith and they said no this is not the superiority of your God you're nothing you're a drop in the bucket. You're dust on the scales. Your gods are nothing. You have no power. God has set you in place. God can take you out at any time. This is God judging Israel and nothing more. And God will judge you too. Your days are numbered. Brothers and sisters, it cannot be emphasized enough. This is only faith in the word of God. This is our secret weapon. When everything else looks hopeless, when all the odds are against us, when all the world is interpreting things against God, all we've got is the word of God to go on. They believed the word. They believed God's promise. They believed God's sovereignty. They believed God's faithfulness to Israel. And therefore, they didn't succumb. That's, that's what's going on here. Remember the Lord of the Rings? When uh, Gandalf goes to Saruman, he thinks Saruman's all good. And he's like, we need to stand against the, uh, the upcoming invasion. And Saruman says, you think we can actually stand against them? There's no hope. We have to join them. We have to join them. Remember? They didn't succumb, even though everything looked hopeless, because they knew they had a big God who was in control and who had promised salvation for Israel. That is the gospel right there. That is what the gospel of Christ is all about, in that we believe as Christians that we have a big God who has given us promises 
and who is in control and against all odds, even though everything looks hopeless for us, when we look upon the law of God, as Christians, we are believing and nothing more. It's not being strong, is it? Being a Christian is not willpower, is it? Being a Christian is believing in the Word of God. Even though the Word of God says that the soul that sins shall die. And we read that and we say, oh my, I'm dead. That's worse than Babylon, isn't it? The soul that sins shall die. Have you sinned? I've sinned. Many, many times repeatedly and I will continue to do that. And yet I have hope. Even though I am a sinner, and based upon my actions, by all appearances, I deserve hell, right? And that's what God says I deserve. And God's word is true. But God has also promised salvation to those who believe. Because like the names of those Israelites signify, God is gracious. God is a judge, yes. God is a gracious judge. God is our deliverer. And there is truly no one like God who is both our judge, our executioner, and our deliverer at the same time. And so this is simply an illustration of the gospel that these young men believed against the odds in their God who would deliver them, and he did. And so as Christians, we also simply have only the word of God to go off of. We believe and we are saved. Amen? God is a, is a great God, isn't he? And for him to save you from your sins and damnation is for him to do something even greater than him delivering Israel from a few lousy Babylonian spears, right? And I won't go into all the details of the story. You're probably very familiar with the story. But as it plays out, uh, Daniel and his friends refuse to bow to the gods of the Babylonians. And God's sovereignty is all over this chapter, isn't it? He gives them, he gives them favor with the uh, man that's over them, and that's not because the man was a friendly man. Okay? The man was not friendly. And it doesn't say he was friendly. Most people say, oh, he just happened to be friendly. It's God who gave them favor. The reason that man was compassionate was God. The reason that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah, uh, came out on top ten times better than everybody else, were wiser than everybody else, was God. Not because we're supposed to look at them and glory in them and say, wow, look how great and powerful these guys are. Look how smart they are. It was the gift of God. He's in control. He gives his gifts to men. And so we're supposed to see his handiwork and give him glory. God proves himself, as we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Daniel, to be in control and sovereign throughout the entire duration of their stay in Babylon. And look at verse 21 here in closing. Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. What that means is he outlived the Babylonian empire. He came in as a 14-year-old boy, overwhelmed by all the grandeur of Babylon, by faith in the word of God and belief in the sovereignty and power of God, he didn't succumb to it and he lived to see the end of the Babylonians. It was over with them at the end of his life. 
This young kid outlived that great empire. If you were to ask him at that time, which do you think is going to last longer, you or this empire? But here he outlives it. Daniel spent over 70 years in Babylon. Daniel's faith was rightly placed, was it not? He chose the right side. As great as, and as impressive as Babylon looked, it was just dust on the scales. Adonai is sovereign. Do you acknowledge Adonai to be Lord? Do you acknowledge God to be the Lord? Not simply creator, but sovereign. It's one thing to acknowledge that God is the creator, but it's another thing to acknowledge that the creator is the righteous judge who judges in the kingdoms of men, who raises nations and tears down nations, and whose power is guided by his promise, and that we can trust his promise and know that he is able to follow through with what he has said he will do despite all the opposition of men and Satan. Do you believe that God is Adonai? I don't think that there is a message um, that is much more encouraging than this message of the book of Daniel, that God is in control. And in our day, when people are freaking out about what's going on in the world, how wonderful it is to remember that the nations are simply drops in the bucket, and that God raises them up, as Job said, and he destroys them at his will. He sets over the kings, he sets over the earth, whom he will, to do what he will. And this is so comforting, and this faith gives us courage to live our lives. Don't be afraid when all seems hopeless, both in the earth or with your soul. God is mighty to save. He has promised to take care of you if you trust in him. When it's all been said and done, the gods of the nations will lie broken and prostrate and God will be exalted. And today as ever, this saying of the psalmist rings true and we should take it to heart because Daniel took it to heart and his friends took it to heart and all those who have trusted in God take it to heart. From Psalm 46, verse 10, I'll just close with this verse. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted above the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in control. We admittedly don't probably think about that as enough and find rest in that as much as we should. I pray that today, Lord, you would encourage and fortify us and strengthen us with the knowledge that you are sovereign, that Satan and nations 
and even individuals are under your control. And we thank you for being the God who you are and that there is no one like you and we acknowledge that this morning. There is none like you. Powerful and good. Thank you for your promises that we can believe. Thank you that you are mighty to save. Please continue to teach us as we go through the book of Daniel and transform our minds, Lord, so that we would truly see you for who you are and understand the things that you want us to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.